There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, I'm Dr Renee Beale, science communicator and curator at the Royal Society of Victoria. I'm delighted to be presenting this special climactic podcast for National Science Week 2019. Today I'm joined by Professor Veena Sahajwala, a material scientist, engineer and inventor from the University of New South Wales. Veena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Renee. Hi, producer Mark here. And before we actually let you get on with this episode, we've got a quick bit of housekeeping to do. As some of you may know, we offer the Community Corner on this show as a kind of audio community notice board. And this week, we just have too many messages to put in the middle of the show. So you're about to hear two audio messages that were sent in to us. And then in the middle of the show, you'll hear two more. This is a great way for the community to share events, news, get the word out about something. And we welcome you to use it as well. Just go to www.climactic.fm slash community corner for more information or check out the link in the show notes. And while you're there, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts, it really helps other people find the show. But the best way for people to find out is for you to tell them. So if you've got a friend or family member who you think would enjoy the show, please let them know and help them find it. We're available on all the podcast apps, Spotify, and of course, always at www.climactic.fm. Hi everyone, it's Mel from Trash Bags on Tour. Just wanted to let you know that we have yet another great eco-conservation tour coming up on Saturday the 26th of October. For the first time ever, we're actually heading out to Phillip Island. Um, So we're going to do some great conservation work for the little penguins there. We'll do a beach cleanup, we'll go see the koala sanctuary on the island as well, visit the nobbies and go see the one and only Antarctic journey. And we'll also, of course, have a bit of a low-waste lifestyle discussion on how we can all reduce our impact on the planet and have a positive impact instead. Um, It's going to be great fun with loads of like-minded people. Um, So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in joining, go secure your tickets now on our Facebook page or on Eventbrite. Thanks. Bye. Plastic pollution is everywhere. A drift lab are currently seeking applicants for a PhD project looking at how plastic debris affects the tourism industry of small remote islands. It's a really exciting project and you'll get to do some really unique field work. Successful applicants will need to hold first class honours or a master's degree along with one publication. Applications close November 8th and you'll need to begin by December 31st this year. Excellent. So let's begin by jumping back in time, have you always wanted to be a scientist and particularly specialising in material science, which is a little bit different? Yeah, it's interesting. I think as a kid, I do remember one thing. I loved breaking things. <laughs> Fantastic. So I was like, okay, now that I've broken this, 
and this is pretty cool. Can I actually put it back and make something? Awesome. So I think this is where, for me, the journey of being a, a scientist, being an engineer, being someone who, who just loved to see how materials were made and broken and fell apart was all just kind of almost there. I think it was sort of well and truly before I even realized this is what science is all about. Fantastic. So as a young female entering material science... Was the field fairly emerging when you started in it? Oh, look, absolutely. I think when, you know, when I was doing my undergraduate, um, which I did my undergrad in India, materials and, and just basically science and engineering um, more broadly, very few women were in the room around me. So it was a bit of a scary experience, <laughs> to put it very, very mildly. <laughs> Fantastic. And so I've always seen you as a bit of a role model for up-and-coming female scientists, particularly in the physical sciences, which we're seeing quite a lot more women come through the biological sciences. But I think it's just fantastic to have role models that are really strong women who are making a difference in in that field. I think so. I agree with you, Renee, because I mean, I think to me, this is what would have made life so much more easier for me as an undergrad because I think the fact that I hardly had any female teachers, um, not too many classmates, I, I just, I mean, I just sort of sometimes that sense of feeling totally isolated. You know, we're all human beings. So I think, you know, life kind of has its ups and downs. And it's just nice to be able to have people you can chat to who kind of understand I think the hardest bit was the fact that there were no girls toilets and I had to kind of go a fairly long way to find one let's put it that way and I think just I mean I know these are sort of simple things but it was almost it was almost that sort of sense of ultimately when you are confronted with the realities of life that are that are in the scheme of things difficult when you're a 17 year old to handle I think it's nice to be able to have role models, just people who you can chat to or or just even a friend. You can kind of go, you know what? Oh, I'm really feeling a bit down. This, I need help. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, so I, I think it is nice to be able to have, you know, whether that person is a role model or whether that's somebody who you can call a friend or just someone who's happy to just, you know, kind of be someone you can chat to and perhaps cry a bit if you have to. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think also what's fantastic about your research is that you really, I mean, a a lot of the early material science was very theoretical and lab bound. And I think what's lovely about your research is there's a social element to it as well. So we'll get to your research in a minute. But what you're injecting into it is using your science to actually help solve some some social challenges as well that we that we currently face around recycling yeah. materials and I think that's also a wonderful lesson for for females who tend to actually want to solve social challenges as well and perhaps you're doing that in a in a field that's been very theoretical in the past yeah now look you're absolutely right there in a you know I think the fact that we can show that science is so multifaceted is really important because you know you have to ask that question why are we doing the science that we are doing of course we're passionate about the work that we do but I think also equally importantly if we can actually imagine what the science could become 
for for people on this planet and you know how everyday people might be able to look to your signs in years to come uh, well and truly after your sort of done and dusted uh, literally uh, <laughs> you know you you might sort of actually not realize but how you might have created impact and how you might have improved you know whether it's about improving the quality of life for people on this planet or whether it's in Australia or anywhere else in the world or whether it's quality of the environment the air we breathe the water we drink so so i think science can actually be so multifaceted and i think in a way if you think deeply about what it could mean because you're the person who actually understands your work in that depth and i think it is important to do that and every so often have a conversation with yourself that's okay you know i'm caught out by my family where i'm kind of just thinking out loud and having the conversation and and people kind of go ah you're talking to yourself again aren't you <laughs> <laughs> so that that's that's part and parcel of being a scientist where you can let your imagination wild that's fantastic so i was going to talk a little bit about your personal philosophy because one thing that i love about reading when you are interviewed is how you speak about waste so i think you have a very and and this kind of is obviously your thinking but also some of my friends who are chemists and various other material scientists i love the way you guys think so atoms are atoms basically no matter where they reside and what they're currently comprising and i think we tend to forget that because we say oh well that's a piece of plastic or that's you know that's in a toy at the moment or whatever we don't want that piece of plastic bottle or we don't want that toy anymore and so well it's no good anymore let's throw it in the waste whereas you guys look at those things and you say no they're all fantastic because they're just made out of atoms and we can just rearrange those atoms and create something really important and new that we can then reuse mm. yeah you you've described it beautifully there Renee i mean we have to be able to see our materials fundamentally as materials that can be brought to life over and over again and in a way the fact that we can reform them whether it's about reforming it structurally or the chemistry or how we combine different types of materials but fundamentally absolutely the atoms and the molecules that are there in any material and a product really never dies so we need to be able to preserve those for for the sake of our planet because we do have limited resources and it costs a lot of energy to make our materials and our products so the more we start to think about our materials as these little mini packets of not just materials but actually let's think of them as little bundles of energy because if we've put in you know energy into making a material or a product why would we want to just throw it away after that single use or that single life or just because it's kind of broken and fallen apart at a macro level because fundamentally that material with all the molecules that that are present in it that's still there it's about that preservation of that material at that molecular level because in doing so we're actually preserving that little bundle of energy that actually went into it and and i guess to me the classic thing is when we think about you know materials like aluminum and everybody will you know who has studied aluminum will realize and will appreciate that making aluminum by recycling actually saves more than 90% energy compared to making it through mining and smelting so you would actually ask the question if good quality aluminum is already available in products just because we finish using that product doesn't mean that that aluminum has in any way 
degraded in its quality. So why are we not finding better ways to see that end-of-life product, not as a waste, but why are we not seeing this as a really beautiful Effectively, it's nothing but a mine that happens to be sitting above ground of a far superior quality. So I think to me, it's kind of ironic that we look at it and go, oh, that's bad and we need to just throw it away into landfill or burn it. When we could actually be seeing it as a beautiful, you know, little micro mine where we've all collected our community waste and we could be doing that. We could be actually creating good quality aluminium out of just our waste packaging, for instance. So there's a good example of how materials, whether they are polymers or metals, could be brought to life and they could be kept in our economy over and over again, being used in different forms. And so we actually call that the fourth R. That's basically reform. You know, people know about the three R's, reduce, reuse, recycle. And what we're saying now is let's bring fourth R into the picture. And if we can actually start to talk about reform, then people can actually go, okay, well, this might not be fit for traditional recycling, but let's think about it as that possibility to feed into that fourth R of reform, which means suddenly we're going to stop and go, no, wait a minute, we cannot throw this away. We cannot label this as a waste because it's just another material that's waiting to be reformed. And, And that's when we'll all actually challenge ourselves as communities, as businesses, as scientists, as engineers, we'll all have to work together in an ecosystem that says, can we bring science to bear so that we can actually see benefits of how science could actually bring to life our materials and keep them in our economy um, forever. Fantastic. So let's come to your e-waste micro uh, recycling factories, which are just gorgeous. Thank you. Yeah, let, let's come to that in terms of what you were saying. So um, in terms of how we could actually send them out into the community for them to do some of some of the work that you were talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, people may not realise that, of course, you know, when we talk about e-waste, it's a whole collection of different types of materials. I mean, of course, we know um, there are metals on our circuit boards, uh, but there's also really good quality plastics. So if we can actually imagine that it's not just that the metals are useful, but also if we could tap into the plastics uh, that are present, for instance, you know, a lot of casing, our printers, all of these materials are actually fantastic quality plastics so you can imagine that if we could in fact reform those and create valuable materials and products that were then beautiful quality feedstock for subsequent manufacturing so you then have a whole scenario where green manufacturing becomes a viable solution and micro factories simply are enabling technologies where a whole modularized thinking, which is what a micro factory is all about, is to be able to bring these different types of modules to work in harmony. And therefore, it creates an ecosystem of different operators, small businesses, communities who can then come together and go, let's collectively develop a micro factory that can take this waste product And that can then transform that waste plastic, in this case, for instance, if we use that as an example, into plastic filaments. Those plastic filaments then become feedstock for 3D printing. So suddenly, if I'm a small manufacturer and if I've got someone down the road who's making plastic filaments, I don't have to be importing these plastic filaments. I can actually literally 
duck down the road or the suburb next door or the town next door. And in a day's time, I can source plastic filaments that are customized for me. And I can actually start to imagine that as a manufacturer, there are then no limits. I can specify exactly the kind of filament I want, um, the kind of plastic I want. And I can, in fact, start to imagine a whole range of additives that could then be incorporated. Whereas, you know, if I'm a small manufacturer and if I'm placing an order with some large company overseas, they're not going to care about my requirements and my order. I may well be at the bottom of their priority list. But in fact, having micro factories means we can all be part of this ecosystem where, you know, I can then be really innovative, really creative. And then I can be, in fact, supplying in a whole range of amazing products to my customers. And suddenly that whole, you know, cycle of value creation from waste just becomes part of norm. You know, we're all just seeing it as, hey, this is a normal thing to do. You know, I can kind of prescribe exactly the kind of materials I want for my 3D printing. And the company that's making these plastic filaments for me out of waste materials can customize it, make that small batch for me. And in 24 hours, I could be manufacturing a product. So suddenly that whole green manufacturing, that whole ecosystem is localized. And we've then created local jobs and we've actually created, you know, possibilities of creating innovative products that we would have never imagined before. That's fantastic. And also the ability, if you're a manufacturer, to know the passage of your of all the components that have made your products as mm. well. So we were talking before about the fashion industry, for example, and how difficult it is to control each of the inputs into mm. your item of, of clothing and be able to actually report back and say, you know, we, we actually have a, a fully ethical and sustainable label. If everything is, is produced, all the components are produced locally, then you can pay better attention, I suppose, because you've got that access to your local suppliers to exactly what your product is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is really nice when you can actually tell that story and you can say, well, actually, this thing used to be my printer, you know, last week. <laughs> and, and now look at what I've created. And, you know, same thing with waste textiles. We're showing that we can actually create amazing, beautiful, tiles where we can incorporate waste textiles into our building products and now for two more messages from the community in climactic's community corner now these two are a little bit different and they haven't been sent in as audio messages but instead are just two things that are happening in the community that i thought are well worth your attention but if you've got an event coming up or something to share and send in an audio message yourself you'll have complete control over the message and honestly, it's a nice change to hear other people's voices than just having to hear mine again. But here we are. Running from the 17th of October to the 27th, artist Marin Bridie, past guest and friend of the show, is running her exhibition Electric Prisms at the Toot Art Space in St. Kilda. You can find a link with more details in the show notes and also a link to Marin's episode about her art and the radical optimism she feels when she visits the wind turbines near her home in Western Victoria. Thank you, Marin, and I look forward to meeting you in person. Also to bring to your attention is a job opportunity at Carbon Sink in Western Australia. Carbon Sink is a startup working on restoring carbon to our soil. One of the most important things we can do and one of our best tools in combating climate change. This was brought to my attention by many people here in Australia and even some people in the States, specifically Ross Kenyon, co-host of the great Nori Reversing Climate Change podcast. 
and is a great opportunity for the right person. So check out the link to this in the show notes and have a think if you know anyone who you can tell about this great opportunity. Thank you for listening. Once again, send in a message to Climactic Community Corner if you've got something to share with the community. And now let's get back to Renee and Vina. And these tiles have got incredible properties. So for instance, in some cases, we're producing acoustic tiles. So you can imagine, (laughs) we could all be kind of going down to our local micro factory and going, you know what? I need, you know, 100 blue colored acoustic tiles. Can someone manufacture that for me? Supply chain. Okay, we can go down to local Vinnie's or Salvo's and get them to put aside for you waste textiles that are blue in color. That then becomes part of your supply chain. And imagine then you've suddenly created, again, within a matter of a week, a customized hexagonal, beautiful blue acoustic tiles for my boardroom, you know? And and it just is this whole new way of doing business because I still get what I want. If I'm placing an order and I get the color I want, I get the properties I want, the supply chain means I know exactly where those materials have come from. I can be prescriptive in terms of the properties and the colors and the design side of it. And in a way, the point you're making around ethical sourcing is so important. I know that this has come from clothes. I've helped out my local charity. I've helped out my local business who can manufacture these products for me. And and of course, why would we put away our clothes into landfill when we know we could be manufacturing these? So you're absolutely right. I think that transparency in supply chain, in sourcing materials, and what that then means is we're also developing that local small-scale distributed manufacturing capability, which I think is so important. So that ecosystem means we can help each other. We could have machines that do incredible amazing work for us and that's exactly where we are with our micro factories we're not just developing the science but working with some incredible engineers who've had you know experience in industry who've been manufacturing but suddenly now they're working with us in a micro factory and they're so super excited um we've got one guy who used to run his own manufacturing plant and i'm sure keith is going to get absolutely like horrified if i said how many decades have you been working in manufacturing keith but i love the fact that we could literally get him out of retirement and go Keith you need to come and help us and and we've had this incredibly inspiring person who brings his passion for industry for manufacturing and in a way he becomes a mentor to all of us so he's this fabulous person who's had experience in traditional manufacturing but all of a sudden he goes I can help you guys out, you know. And so I think to me, it's been that beautiful synergy between bringing someone who's experienced with manufacturing and helping us establish our micro factories. But the reason why I tell the story is because then that means a lot of traditional manufacturing businesses can actually start to think that way and go, okay, wait a minute. So I could deploy a couple of these micro factory modules and I could be actually morphing myself into all kinds of things that I had never even thought about making before. So it suddenly means that my skills and my talented people that I have employed, if a particular part of the industry sector, you know, has to shut down, I don't have to close that down. I can actually kind of imagine all kinds of other cool products that I could be making if I could kind of set up a micro factory to be able to take waste textiles or waste plastics, for instance. So I think to me, the beautiful part of The work that we do in collaboration with businesses, with social enterprises, I think is just the fact that there's absolutely no limits to our imagination. That whole supply chain and value creation out of waste means 
we are actually respecting our materials. And as a material scientist, I just love the fact that I could literally be putting all kinds of cool products in front of people and going, now, can you guess what this contains? <laughs> and, and it's been just a very humbling experience for me that people have shared that whole passion. You know, even if someone's not a material scientist, you know, the fact that you can share the passion for science and engineering and technology and the impact that this could have on our society is, is a beautiful thing to see. So I think um, one thing that I was thinking of when we were having lunch before is your ideas around, obviously, we've now in Australia having a bit of a revolution around our recycling. So in the past, what we've done has been very committed as a community to collecting our materials and then sending them off overseas most, mostly to be recycled. But unfortunately, some of that industry has, has fallen down and it seems like we'll be recycling a lot of our own products. But I, I love how you were talking about, well, if we are sending things overseas, how about we enable them with these micro factories instead of them trying to process waste in a really toxic, unhealthy, you know, damaging way for the planet and for the, the poor people that are doing it. We can just send over some of our technology. And that's, I mean, a lot of those people really want the business, you know, they, they need to earn money. So that's why they're, they're doing this kind of work. But if we can enable them with a healthier way of doing it, then we can create jobs for them in a safe way as well. Yeah, absolutely, Renee. Um, you know, you've summed it up perfectly because I think to me, this is really such an important part of, you know, the impact that we as scientists can actually have on the planet, but equally importantly, to be mindful of so many people who live in disadvantaged communities across the world. So, you know, our responsibility as scientists has to be so much more holistic. And I think if we develop affordable solutions, then we really should also be looking at how we can help communities, whether we're working with not-for-profit sectors, whether it might be the World Bank or organizations mm. that do so much. And there are so many incredibly inspiring people who do so much in so many communities across the world. And if we as scientists can actually make a difference by bringing our science into, into the picture there and to be able to say, right, you know, if we could actually deliver safe technologies, sustainable and technologies. Now, the nice thing about sustainability is that it can be embraced if it is affordable. So I think to me, it's really important that what is sustainable should also be affordable. And we should be able to take that out to different parts of the world and make it accessible so that communities can actually work in a safe environment. And, and I think we have to almost challenge ourselves and say, you know what, we have expectations in terms of safety for our family and for our friends. Should we also be looking at that level of safety for the entire humanity? And we should be, absolutely. And if we as Australians can think about how our science could actually have that impact, that could be so amazing where we would be able to take that and we would make such a big difference to lives of so many more people. So I love thinking about the fact that ultimately it's such a massive multiplier effect that yes we can do incredibly amazing things in Australia but I think if we could equally deploy some of these types of technologies in so many different parts of the world where we know communities are working under horrific conditions conditions that would really be shocking to us and and I remember a year ago when I was actually traveling with some of my colleagues through India and we actually had a film crew with us and we thought right we we want to be able to do this in a way that we actually bring technologies that can fit into various environments. So we need to go and have a look at how waste is being processed in different parts of the world. So, so we took upon that journey. 
And I think it was, again, really, really eye-opening because what we do in Australia, yes, we've got rules and regulations and, and of course, you know, we should have that. But I think also equally importantly to be able to go and see where the conditions and regulations and standards are not yet at the level that we expect. Then can we be a part of that journey in bringing that science to the lives of so many people? So I think to me it was really important for us to actually be a part of that and immerse ourselves. And I think that experience is so important, again, for, for us as scientists to kind of not just speak from a distance but actually be in that space and to be able to then go this is fantastic now I can just see that all the front-end work that is happening here we could actually lift that enormously because we would be creating so much more value from the waste in a safe and a sustainable manner what that means is you're not taking away the livelihoods from people you're actually enabling them to earn more income from the work that they're already doing and that's really the point you know I'd like people to be able to imagine that it's about enabling, creating safe solutions. And if these technologies can help people earn what I think should be a better and an increased share in terms of the wages that they should be earning because of the hard work that they do. I think to me right now in a lot of these communities, we're nowhere there. And I think this is where, uh, you know, when we hear about how little people earn for the hard work that they do, it is heartbreaking. It is so heartbreaking. And then you see kids working in some of these environments. Again, well, all of that's happening because, of course, there are families who simply don't see any other future. So I think to me, it's also a nice thing for us as scientists to push ourselves much, much more than our own, you know, comfort zones. And I know we as scientists love challenges. So imagine if we could have an impact, not just on the world of science, but on communities globally, and ultimately make a huge difference to lives of people and to our planet. So I... I've been lucky enough with my climactic hat on to have a lot of conversations with people in Victoria, especially at the moment around our waste crisis, around one of the potential solutions. And it's kind of a an idea people are starting to grapple with, and we're not sure how it would work in practice, but that's the idea of a circular economy. And I'm kind of curious where your work fits within that, how you relate to the idea of a circular economy, and what it kind of means to you. Um, circular economy, of course, has got to be an integral part of our thinking because that's really where we're going to get different stakeholders to work together. And in fact, in New South Wales, we've just, the government, uh, state government, through the Office of Chief Scientist there, has established a Circular Economy Innovation Network. And, and I've had the privilege now over the last few months to be appointed as a director for that network. And I think, to me, the fact that we can all actually collaborate and see that there is an opportunity for that ecosystem where we do need to be able to imagine that it's not just about us saying, well, the government has to solve this problem or the industry has to solve this problem. If we can all work together, we create that ecosystem where, you know, governments can, you know, support uh, businesses and communities and researchers who all come together. I think to me, that's a perfect way in which circular economy can actually work and we can actually be really innovative in the way we deploy solutions so I think absolutely where the where scientific solutions are already there and we know of you know a solution I think it's very important that we start to pick up on those solutions and find ways to deploy them Mm -hmm. find ways to foster those solutions because ultimately if we are going to make circular economy mainstream we're going to actually have to bring everyone on that journey with us and people need to see what it means for them 
it's not just about saying, oh, look, this is how things are happening in Europe, so we need to do it that way. No, of course not. We, we learn from other people's experience, but I think ultimately we've got to figure out ourselves what's going to work for us, what's going to work for us, say, in a local community which might be in a remote part of the country as opposed to what might be, for instance, in Melbourne or in Sydney mm-hmm. uh, will be very different. So I think we can customize it for local communities, but we can be very mindful of the fact what it takes is ultimately the collective, Mm -hmm. collective will of people from all sectors. So a perfectly circular economy might still be a ways down the track, a perfectly closed loop system. But the idea of striving for a, a circular economy isn't really pie in the sky. It, it's, it gets thrown out as quite a, an often objection to ideas swimming around like waste energy plants, which are currently in the works here. They're going through application phases in, in Victoria. I'd love to get your thoughts on waste energy is, is my last question. But just to quickly dispel any notion that circular economy, that that's good for the the greenies and the dreamers and the activists over there in the corner, that's not just them dreaming or throwing it up as an objection to progress. It is a real thing that is happening. It's a real thing that's happening. And certainly I can tell you that, you know, with the work that we've been doing um, this year in New South Wales, I think just looking at circular economy and the level of ideas that we've taken across to local governments, to businesses, and the fact that everyone is so passionate and excited about doing a circular economy in their zone, I think is the way to think about what ultimately we see as the whole electronics age, where we're seeing phones and digital empowerment at the local level. I think we have to imagine circular solutions at the local level. And I think if we can think about circular solutions at the local level, that then empowers local governments, you know, local businesses to deploy circular solutions in the context of their space and their world. It's not about this one ginormous thing out there, a pie in the sky kind of thing. It's very much about what we can do realistically on the ground at the local level. And I think that's what we're trying to inspire everyone to do is learn from these examples that we are going to be deploying and the fact that communities and businesses are all willing to share their stories I think to me it's about all of us inspiring each other so if somebody's come up with a cool thing to do with their waste metal and someone's come up with a really cool thing to do with their waste plastics and to keep these plastics in our economy where we can actually put it into our productive economy where we do not burn it <laughs> is is what circular economy is going to be all about is to be allowing our materials to be reformed in many many different ways so ultimately you know everyone in the economy wins because you can make products you can make money you can create local jobs but hey if you burn it away then it's lost forever that's perfect vina it, it seems like you know as a material scientist you're really excited by what cool stuff we can do with reforming and reusing this stuff how frustrating is it then to see blunt force tool like like fire being applied to just incinerate the stuff or or even slightly different but still the same principle of pyrolysis of turning plastic into into diesel and stuff like this there's a lot lost in that in that process isn't there yeah look i i you know i think sometimes you almost have to sort of look at it as uh, okay your polymer bills the notes imagine burning away your polymers in the form of notes you can't 
kind of, you know, starting to think about it that way, then you go, hmm, okay, all of that really good quality polymers that went into making these incredibly amazing products. Now, fair enough, I've used it for a year or two, but you know what? Okay, it might have stopped working as my printer, but that polymer is perfectly fine. What if I could reform it in some other way? Then all of that energy that went into making that polymer in the first place, where those beautiful materials are not only just sources of materials, but they are beautiful little bundles of energy. Then you, if you recycle and reform it, you've actually allowed that material and that energy to remain in our economy. And I think to me, that's the way we should be starting to think about it. And if we can reform, recycle, keep our materials in our economy for as long as possible, we'd be enabling local jobs to be created. And that's really what micro factories are all about. Our micro factories are built on the principle that you could set this up anywhere in a remote and a regional town and you could still be dealing with your own waste without having this waste to be transported to some big giant facility somewhere but rather to be able to take that ability to reform your materials into value-added products and imagine if we could be making our products uh, whether they are for building applications for consumer products you could be doing all kinds of cool things in your local communities and in fact a whole range of small towns could come together and have this ecosystem of hey why don't I make a lot of these stuff products out of plastics and you go on and you make things out of waste textiles and glass and you know we'll just kind of have our local economies helping each other out and that ecosystem would be a beautiful way to make sure that it's a win-win outcome for everyone. Isn't that an inspiring vision of the future we got there from waste? That's that's amazing. Thank you, Vina. Uh, on behalf of Dr. Renee Beal and myself, thank you for joining us for this special climactic episode from National Science Week in Victoria. Thank you, Vina. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.